Hi everyone and welcome back to the third episode of season two of Podcastles. I'm here with my sister Georgia and today we're going to be looking at the selection box of Northumberland Castles. We are indeed. We've got a lot to get through, Nick. Yeah, that's all you said to me this morning was, we've got a lot of castles. You know how we decided in, as we always take one county per month and Northumberland is kind of breaking that rule because we are going to just spend one month on it. But we are only in that month going to get through the A's and B's because Northumberland has so many castles. It's got a lot of them. But for a good reason. I mean, it did get fought for a lot. And we've talked about that over the last couple of episodes because obviously it's so far north, it's so far away from London. It's also on a border with a country that we like to fight with back in the day. It needed a lot of defences, so there's a reason for it. But yeah, so we're splitting it up into a few different sections and therefore we're doing the the selection box of Northumberland today which of course means we're running through all the little ones that we thought deserved a little mention a little chat about but weren't sort of so prominent in the history that they needed a whole episode to themselves before we kick off I thought we'd talk about a phrase that I came across in my research quite a lot that is used a lot in Northumberland and in sort of northern territories in general it's called appeal and appeal tower is basically a little fortified keep or tower house um as i say in the north of england quite a lot used from the mid 14th century to about 1600s and not only were there a lot of castles in the north of england because of reasons we've mentioned but sort of everyone felt like they needed to defend themselves so whilst elsewhere in the country castles are kind of just for key nobility all nobility of any form even the lowest or the smallest form of baron felt they needed some sort of fortification for defense i love this concept because basically a peel tower is a very small tower or little keep or house that was very well defended so the door was on the first floor compared to the ground floor and they would have steps or even a ladder getting up to the door so that if suddenly the Scots were to arrive and uh, start pillaging, they could just pull up the ladder. Even churches sometimes had this. I mean, all I can think of is grandma would not be able to get up those steps. Yeah, I know. What happens if you're sort of not the most agile or mobile person? Like, Well, it's also a, it's a lot of effort if you've just done a big food shop. I know. You'd have to carry all the all those bags, all the bags up. up a ladder. It would be a bit of a nightmare, wouldn't it? What if you were bringing an overnight bag with you? I don't really see how it works logistically, but it sounds like a good exercise. Technically, this isn't a castle, but Peel Towers are mentioned quite often as like a part of certain Northumberland castles, so I thought it was definitely worth mentioning right at the start. The violence was so bad that even churches built Peels. For example, Ancroft Church. So, as I say, it's an A, so we're counting it. Not a castle, though. Yeah. The Peel doubled as the church tower, and it was, like, built into the nave in 1300. So did you have to climb up the wall of the church to get in? Yeah, basically. And then they'd have, like, on the ground floor, you could go down some steps on the ground floor to down to the ground floor, which was normally, like, a cellar, and then up to the second floor, which would have sort of chambers and things like that, and, and the first floor would be, like, the main area. Sounds like a house you might build on Sims. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to make one on Sims now. And it's really cool. It's a really cool design. So as I said, other peels are coming up. But one that doesn't really come up, but I really want to talk about, is uh, called Bitchfield, which I love. Excellent. And it belonged to the Middleton family, who we will meet 
in a little bit in a later castle that we're going to talk about. Sounds exciting. So I think it's about time, you know, however long we are now into the podcast, that we actually start talking about some castles, hey? Are they going to be castles or are they going to be churches? No, they're definitely going to be castles, I promise. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So we are kicking off, as I say, with the A's, mm-hmm. We're starting with Aiden Castle, a fortified manor house near Corbridge. And uh, it's actually mm-hmm. now grade one listed. So it's a pretty impressive building. Oh, it's completely, nice. almost completely intact. And this was built by Robert de Rames, who was a very wealthy Suffolk merchant. It was built in 1296, just like a two storied hall house originally. He realised quite quickly that this was a very bad investment because he took his money, he went to the north of England where there was constantly raids and decided to build this little house, basically, not originally fortified, and very quickly realises that this needs to be defended because he keeps getting attacked. So he fortifies it on the outbreak of the Anglo-Scottish Wars in about 1305. He gets his licence to crenellate around then. Basically, licence to crenellate just means, like, he's been given permission to turn it into a defendable castle sort of nature rather than just a little house. It doesn't work because in 1315, the Scots sack it. There's a no peel tower, which we were talking about earlier, which some of the historians such as Pettifer say is really surprising given the sort of size of it and nature of it. But yeah, it's, it's captured by the Scots in 1315 and then in a separate incident, same year, they capture it again and uh, Derames is actually taken prisoner. He's released on ransom and that's at the point that he adds a curtain wall because he's like, this still isn't working. Mm. So as you can see, he's probably thinking this was a bad investment at this point because it's not going so well for him. It's seized again two years later by English rebels this time because obviously it had been taken by the Scots. Then captured again by the uh, Scots in 1346. Yeah, and that's basically all of the sort of exciting stuff we have about it, really. It it goes through some renovations in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries. It's actually converted into a farm eventually. It remained as a farm being used until 1966, but it's now been restored to its original medieval appearance. So that's kind of the end of that one. It's just a quick little whistle-stop tour. That's how a lot of them are going to go today. We've got a lot to get through. It's just little sort of... Little nuggets of information I've got for you. We're moving now on to Bellister Castle. We're now into the Bees. That is near Hortwhistle and basically it's kind of two separate little parts. One is a 19th century mansion. It's attached to a ruinous tower house from the 14th century and it stands on a little mound that may have been the mot of a mot and bailey originally. So a moated house existed there from the 13th century in the 14th century, they added this tower. And basically, this this one is important because the Blenkinsop family lived there. And we've got some fun stories coming up in Ghosts and Skeletons about them. Mm-hmm. John Blenkinsop took up residence there in the 1480s. They sold the estates all of their estates, including Bellister, in 1697. Later on, it was extended to be larger. It was rebuilt in the 19th century. And as I said it becomes sort of a 19th century mansion that's just kind of attached to a medieval tower house a little bit later on. But some interesting ghosts and skeletons coming up about Bellister later on. Looking forward to those. Belsey Castle. I mentioned the peel we were talking about earlier, the Bitchfield one, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that that was owned by the Middleton family. Now, their main residence 
was called Belsey Castle, and they lived there for seven centuries. Wow. In the 13th century, Sir Richard de Middleton was Lord Chancellor to King Henry III. Nice. So that's 1269 to 1272. So pretty important figure we're talking about here. Yeah. I found it interesting, though, that the Lord Chancellor of the King is up in Northumberland because surely he needs to be with the King. Well, would he be up there all the time or would he? I'm sure not. his family just be there? What a long commute, though. Yeah. <laughs> and the HS2 wasn't built even then. I know. Can you imagine? For centuries, it was literally just a tower standing on its own. Some people thought it was a peel tower, but historians have sort of said that's not right. Maybe they didn't have a ladder. I don't know. They, The Middleton family originally owned the castle. It, it goes to a few different people, but by 13... 13- 70. Mm-hmm. It is back in Middleton hands. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, they've had to fortify it against Edward II. Ooh. It was sort of used as the spearhead for a revolt against him. So um, it's definitely already well defended. And as I say, it's quite a grand tower. Yeah. In 1614, so we're still in the Middleton reign here, Thomas Middleton adds a manor house to the tower. So it's no longer just a tower. It's also got a little manor house attached to it. And in the 18th century, they demolished the West Wing and uh, that's done by Arthur Middleton and they have massive alterations there. It's abandoned in the 19th century when Belsey Hall is built close by, by Sir Charles Monk. And that's sort of the end of the Belsey Castle history short and sweet i like it they most of them are very short and sweet except i have to say i have a bit more on berwick castle which is what we're coming to next oh berwick's interesting again we're going to talk about this historian pettifer <laughs> who has been super helpful for some of the research for this mm-hmm. he argues that berwick upon tweet which is where berwick castle is yeah has possibly suffered more sieges than any place other than jerusalem yeah i read that berwick comes up a lot yeah, so really, really busy place in terms of attacks and sieges and raids. So not only is it in the north and by the border of Scotland, which is already a very dangerous place, yeah. this is particularly an important place. This is particularly close to the border as well, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah. This changes hands so many times. Basically, the port, it's really prosperous. It's under the patronage of Scottish kings. This castle was actually commissioned by the Scottish King David I in the 1120s. Mm. And as I say, it's going to change hands quite a lot. We talked a little bit in episode one about how the relationship between the kings of England and the kings of Scotland, and because England was a larger and more powerful country at the time, the Scottish kings were expected to pay homage to the English kings and sort of expect respect and like they're supposed to defer to the english the english king yeah exactly so they're meant to sort of this is very much an english view of it as well oh absolutely i'm very conscious whilst we do this history you have to pay homage to me and uh, i think the scottish kings are a bit like no we don't yeah well this is the problem is they'll they'll go along with it for a while and then they'll be like this is wrong and what I'm really interested to do is hopefully when we finally get through all of the counties of England I'd quite like to go and do Scotland and do all this history again but from a Scottish perspective I think it would be really interesting yeah I'd love that so as I say this castle was originally commissioned by the Scottish King David I in the 1120s but then the castle was first ceded to the English in 1175 after the Treaty of Falaise and that happens after 
The English capture Annick Castle, which obviously we've talked about in previous episodes. They have to give up a load of stuff. The Scottish have to give up a load of stuff in in that when they lose to the English, and that includes Berwick Castle. So clearly, Berwick Castle's quite important because the English are like, no, we want that. Mm. Richard I sells the castle back to the Scottish to fund the Third Crusade in 1190. I think we've talked about Richard before. This is Richard the Lionheart we're talking about. Yeah, He actually spends such a tiny amount of time in England and despite the fact he has such an incredible reputation as being one of our amazing kings he actually cares very little about England he just desperately needed money for this mission and yeah so Richard sells Berwick Castle back to the Scottish to fund the Third Crusade to be fair I think the only reason a lot of young people ever thought Richard the Lionheart was cool was because he's the lion in don't mention it again. Robin Hood. Please don't even mention Robin <laughs> and Hood again. In contrast to John, Richard is better. People are gonna think we are so obsessed with this I, film. I love it. And my biggest my biggest regret at the moment is that it was on VCR, so I can't even I'm gonna buy it and we're gonna have to have a watch party. Not sponsor. Um, <laughs> but watch it. It's phenomenal. Says the two girls who hasn't seen it in 15 years and we don't know if it's phenomenal. Anyway. Speaking of King John, your absolute favourite king, I know, Nick, he actually sacks it in 1215. So after his brother sells it back to them 25 years before, yeah, he sacks it, but it actually does say stay Scottish, which suggests that John failed. Oh, John fails. Anyway, moving to the end of the 13th century now, 1296, yeah. on to Edward I. So... Edward I invades Scotland in 1296. He sort of re reintroduced all these issues. Well, to be fair, it's one of the first like major times where he's decided that actually England are going to own the whole of Scotland and he invades late 13th century. Now, in the lead up to that, there's a dispute going on between various contenders for the throne. There's John Balliol. There's the Count of Holland and there's Robert the Bruce, whose name might ring a bell. In 1292, representatives of Edward I arrive in Berwick and in the castle hall of Berwick Castle announce that Edward I backs John Balliol. Now, he is, he is elected as King of the Scots and uh, in 1293, renounces his fealty to Edward I. So as I've mentioned, the, the English kings sort of see Scotland as a vassal and believe they should sort of pay homage to him. And John Balliol decides that's not going to happen, despite the fact that Edward I had sort of backed him and selected him as the feudal overlord. So, so that obviously causes, causes some issues. Yeah, just some. So Edward I decides to uh, take his castles away for it because he's expecting homage. And by, by 1295, Balliol had founded a, a council of 12 magnates and basically taken control of the Scottish government. They made a treaty with the French. It's called the Old Alliance. Mm -hmm. As comes up frequently in Anglo-Scottish history, you don't want to be sandwiched by... by opponents so England's in the middle we've got Scotland above us and uh, France you know just beyond the channel and when they make an alliance and they've already said I'm not paying fealty to you anymore like I don't see you as above me it's gonna make you feel quite uncomfortable as the king of England and he's getting a bit worried obviously oh and also should probably mention French are at war with England at the time 
The Scots start invading Carlisle and uh, various other places. So Edward decides to sack Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is the strongest sort of border town that is currently owned by Scotland. He then moves straight on to Edinburgh and within three weeks, the whole of Scotland fell to Edward I. That's kind of a story for another time, I think. There's a lot more detail we could go into that. I'm very apprehensive to do that summary because this is a massive bit of history that I'm sure we will cover very shortly. But that is a sort of basic summary. Now, we're then moving on to uh, William Wallace. So straight afterwards, this is now 1297, he becomes the new leader of the opposition to English rule in Scotland. And uh, he recaptures Berwick-upon-Tweed. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of violence in these recaptures and these sort of pillaging. Atrocities literally wherever William Wallace and his army go. He's now appointed the guardian of Scotland and they do temporarily regain Berwick Castle. He's got tons of castles, but Berwick doesn't remain in in Scottish hands Mm. and uh, despite the fact that he gets loads of castles there's a few key ones that he doesn't manage to get which prove to be crucial and they remain under English control so that's Edinburgh Roxburgh Berwick places like that that he really needed to have captured in order for this to work now this leads to an open battle in the end which is not a good idea because at the time the English just were better on on the open field in terms of armies. They they had a lot more technology, a lot more power, a lot more people. So it didn't go well for the Scottish. And uh, Wallace had to flee to France. Now he returns in thirteen o three and is immediately captured and hanged, drawn, and quartered. It's William Wallace that is a uh, Mel Gibson in that movie. <laughs> okay, I'll take your word for it. Edward the First then launches a full scale campaign. So that's sort of, that's where we're going to end that story for now. Again, a lot more to be covered. I think there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? But we're trying to keep this relevant to Barrett Castle. Yeah. Robert the Bruce, as we mentioned already, seizes the town by a ruse in 1218. And after that, Edward II fails to recover it. So we're now on to Edward II's rule in England. Mm. On to another Edward, because, you know, this is how it goes with names. Edward III blockades it until eventually Berwick Castle surrenders in 1333. And it remains in English hands for the rest of the 14th century, bar one brief exception, which... wow. We don't really need to go into it. What happens to it after the 14th century? We also know that Henry Percy revolts against Henry IV. I think we talked about that in episode one a bit. And the rebels handed Berwick Castle over to Scotland in return for support. So they say, if you support us in our rebellion against Henry IV, we will give you Berwick Castle back. And uh, the, the deal is made, but Henry IV marches north and he captures the tower, he bombards the castle with cannon fire, and he wins. This is all happening in 1405. Now, a similar situation happening a little bit later on in sort of 1480s. After Henry VI is deposed and the Yorkists come to the throne, the Lancastrians, they make, they make a deal again with the Scottish and they offer Berwick to them for support. Uh, It doesn't work out, though, because in 1482, Richard of Gloucester, 
who is to become Richard III, that's uh, the guy with the hunchback in, in the Shakespeare plays, he captures the castle again back from the first Lord Hales. So it's back in the back in England. So as we see, it's going it's going backwards yeah. and forwards a lot, which a lot of these castles do, but Berwick is particularly important, some really key yeah. it seems to be really key in strategy between Anglo Scottish wars. In terms of architecture and sort of the actual structure of the, of the castle mm-hmm. itself. Edward I started to build a wall around it. It's reinforced by Robert the Bruce, and uh, that is a two-mile wall, so it's, it's pretty impressive. Wow. The, the castle's actually known for its Elizabethan fortifications, though. They're actually begun under Mary in 1558, but with the political situation and the war with France that comes alongside mm. sort of Mary's rule into the beginning of Elizabeth's rule, there's a lot of rekindled fears about Scottish invasion and what if the Scots and French get back together and, you know, yeah. lots of fears about that coming again, history repeating itself. So so there are a lot of fortifications built. Actually, these Elizabethan fortifications, they're some of the best in Europe at the time. So wow. once again, really proving the importance of Berwick that they put this much sort of investment and care into its into its fortifications and defences. Yeah, that's incredible. However, after Mary, Queen of Scots, flees to England, again, another story that we've touched on, but I really think we're going to need to sort of do a full story on at some point. Yeah, definitely. Mary, Queen of Scots, for various reasons, has to flee to England. And uh, after that, I think the threat diminishes a lot because, for one thing, it's now a Protestant sort of group leading and ruling Scotland. For another thing, they've got Mary, Queen of Scots, sort of in home confinement. They've kind of captured her, but it's kind of cushy. House imprisonment. Yeah, she's sort of in lockdown. This leads little more to be needed to be done to uh, Berwick Castle, they sort of leave it half completed in the 70s. Yeah. One of the final things to mention, 1590, John Selby announces that the tower used only for guns um, has collapsed in wet weather and uh, it's a quarry for a while and because it's designed for and against artillery, it's a very different conception to medieval town walls. Mm-hmm. It's got bastions and things like that and uh, a lot... Lots of the the castle and also the, the town walls and the area is actually swept away for a train station in 1850. But that's kind of the majority of the history of Berwick. Very, very quickly swept up. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, there's so much, so much to get in there. Penultimate castle to get to today. Mm-hmm. Bothell Castle. Yep is fortified before the Norman Conquest, which is quite unusual. There may have been also a Norman castle there occupying the site for a while, but in 1095 is when we really know the history to start. Mm-hmm. Um, Bothell was given by King William Rufus to to Guy I of Balliol. His daughter marries William Betram, who is Baron of Mitford, and they built a whole house there. Now, skip forwards a couple of hundred years, 1343, Sir Robert Bertram crenellates and uh, adds a gatehouse, which is really the principal feature. And it's passed down to the Ogle family through marriage. Love that word, Ogle. I'd love to have the surname Ogle. I just think it's great. Yeah, it's quite a good name. 
Now, it stays in the Ogle family for quite a while. We're skipping forward another couple of hundred years now to 1583. Wow, yeah. Cuthbert Ogle, the seventh Baron Ogle. <laughs> You're just saying Ogle as much as you can now. I really am, yeah. Married his daughter Jane to Edward Talbot the son of the 6th Earl of Shrewsbury. Why do I know the name Talbot? I know the name Talbot as well. I was hoping you could tell me why I know the name Talbot. It'll probably come to me in the middle of the night. It's passed again through marriage to the Dukes of Portland and it is still a private residence for them now. Key, key sort of claims to fame. King James visits the castle in 1617 on his way to Scotland. He stays there a couple of nights. And there's also a restoration in the 19th century. Final castle is Bywell Castle in the village of Bywell. It overlooks the River Tyne, if you're interested in where it is. Oh, nice. Now, this one, this is tied to the Neville family. Oh. So it's a big, it's one of their lands. Um, in 1430, the Neville family, specifically Ralph Neville, Earl of Westmoreland at the time, owns Bywell Castle. It's a, it's a minor Neville stronghold. It's not the main place they live, but they have various properties around the north, really. No. It's actually never really completed. It's a three-storey gatehouse, and there's still some remains there, and there's still part of the curtain wall that was built as a defence. In 1464, the, the castle received the deposed Henry VI as a fugitive, who took refuge there after the Battle of Hexham in the Wars of the Roses? Oh wow! Basically, when the York, but when the Yorkists approached the the castle, yeah, Bile just just surrendered without a fight, and um, yeah, just gave it up to them pretty quickly. I think he was pretty scared. It's not the best place to hide if you're a, if you're a king if the person's just going to give no. it up. That's really its only claim to fame. It was privately owned. It's still privately owned, so it's not really open to visitors. Um, by, and it's owned by the Viscounts of Allendale. Did you say Arendale? Allendale, I know. Oh, Allendale, okay. Um, so it's time to move on to the Ghosts and Skeletons. Nice. And a little bit of uh, tea for you to rate today. Excellent, very excited for this. Ghosts and Skeletons. It's time to move on to the ghosts and skeletons because I have some tea for you to rate, Nick. Excellent. I have my mug here already. So do I. It is coffee, but, you know. I really burnt my mouth doing that. The things I do for good sound effects. So, similar to episode one, mm. I, I've got some sort of actual ghost stories here. Ooh, some nice unsubstantiated claims. I know. So they're kind of a bit unsubstantiated, but they're well-known sort of tales around the area and they are very, very long-lasting tales Yeah. that I came across multiple times. But yeah, they're not really the historical fact. We're going more for literal ghosts and skeleton stories here today. But I've got a couple for you and I want you to rate them for me, Nick. Excellent. I, I will happily oblige. We'll kick off with the shorter one. Aden Castle, we'll start from A again, it makes sense. Of course. It's been said to be witness to several tragedies, and particularly, apparently in the 1930s, two children from the family who lived there at the time died in a fire, apparently. Lots of people say that when you go up the steps by the kitchen, there's a, a pressing feeling that descends upon you, apparently. And, more importantly... Many psychics have located a strange presence there. Oh, it must be true. Must be true then. No offence to psychics. <laughs> yeah, so apparently lots of people say that they've sort of like felt the presence or sort of like... 
Okay. There's a lot of ghosts and skeletons you sort of stories around these two children that were apparently, unfortunately, killed in a fire there. Nice. That is that is the full story of that. I'm going to give that a two. Yeah, it was not a very good one, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> second one is better, though. The second one is connected to uh, Bellister Castle, and it's, it's the story of the grey man. Ooh. Linked to the uh, Blenkinsop family that we mentioned earlier, who built Bellister Castle and remained there, it remained in their family until 1470. Excellent. And uh, there's been a lot of descriptions much later than that that they connect to a certain story. So let me tell you this story now. Okay. Legend has it that a, a musician or a minstrel known at the time called upon the castle during a, a storm or some sort of bad bad weather event mm. and asked for shelter. He asked to be let in and sort of given food and a night's, a night's rest there. And the lord of the castle, Lord Blenkinsop, allowed him in. But uh, as they were sort of hanging out, as you do in the castle, having dinner and everything, the, the lord becomes suspicious of him. And at the time, mm. I mean, given where it is in the country... People are often very suspicious of spies and things like that. There's worries that maybe, maybe... Doesn't surprise me. No, exactly. Given all the raids and the wars that mm. are going on, it, it doesn't surprise me that this story has popped up. The Lord becomes really suspicious of this this minstrel, this musician. And simultaneously, the minstrel starts to notice that his welcome is becoming more and more icy and the Lord is becoming less friendly. Mm. So he starts to get a little bit nervous about the hostilities arising. And so in the middle of the night, the minstrel decides, you know what, I don't feel that safe here. I'd actually rather brace the storm than stay here. So he leaves. But now that looks quite suspicious because whilst it's late at night, in the middle of a storm, running away, yeah, why? It's a, it's a little bit dodgy. And Lord Blenkinsop finds out about this because... Around the same time, he says to his men, no, this doesn't feel right. I can't just leave it. Go get this minstrel. We need to question him and check he's not a spy. They go to the room and he's not there. So he's now fled in the night, which seems particularly dodgy to the Lord and his men. It's not looking good on either side. No. So I can see how this sort of, it's just misunderstanding. You know, they just need to communicate more. Got to communicate. Hmm. They haven't understood each other and the Lord gets really suspicious and he sends his hunting dogs out to find him because he thinks something bad has happened. Oh. Now, there are two ways this story goes in the various versions I've read. One says that the dogs yeah. catch him and hunting dogs, oh. it's quite gross. If you've seen Game of Thrones, there's a scene with it in that. He Ramsey snowed him. Yeah. So in one side of the story, the dogs sort of tear the minstrel apart. And uh, in the other story, the dogs just sort of catch him they actually don't attack him and the Lord comes and gets him. They don't really give him a trial. They they use the fact that he snuck away in the night as clear evidence that he must be a spy mm. and they then hang him on an old sycamore close close to the grounds and it's known as the hanging Aww. tree. In fact, actually, it's known as the hanging tree also because royalists during the Civil War were said to have been executed there by parliamentary troops. Oh. Anyway, that's not the end of the story. It's not. No. Either way, the minstrel dies, but his guilt or innocence was never proven. And so begins the, the story of the grey man at, uh, at the castle, because now mm. it's said 
that his ghost, the minstrel's ghost, haunted the the Lord for the rest of his life. He often followed the Baron along the road to Bellister whenever he returned after sunset and um, sort of hounded the Baron apparently into an early grave because he sort of went a bit insane from it all. Now, following that, it's been said that every time the, the grey man is sighted, disaster always follows it. And this has been talked about in M.A. Um, Richardson's table book in the 1840s, tells of a tale with the grey man of Bellister 50 years before that, where a young man was heading his way towards the castle and um, the the road was sort of uh, broken and difficult it was dark and he didn't really want to be on the road alone so he saw someone up ahead and he called out to them to sort of like oh we can we can walk along together and make friends and uh, the traveler never responds and doesn't stop until it gets to the gateway when the stranger finally turns around and it's like a really gross figure and there's like a gash across his face and he's in tatters and then he looks and points at the castle and then disappears and there's like blood on him and things like that. It's very gross. It's very like morbid. It's a very Victorian tale, let's just say that. So this this guy obviously freaks out. Edward goes to a nearby house who and the woman lets him in and lets him stay the night and he tells the story and she freaks out because there's this tale anybody that sees this ghost who he has described then sort of dies falls into misfortune after oh. it and she tells him that and says like that is not good and apparently later that evening the traveler gets ill and dies overnight oh. so Richardson finishes his story by saying the grey man no longer appears at Ballister. They haven't seen him for 50 years or so, but everyone still like doesn't want to be on that road at night. He's basically like, just because he hasn't been seen in years, don't walk that area by the castle at night because everyone's still very scared of it. Well, that was a better story. Yes. That's much more campfire-worthy. That is, I feel like that's our first, like, serious, serious ghost and skeleton story. That's a much better ghost story. I like that. I'd, I'd, give, that, I'd give that a solid seven. Okay. I think it really depends on whether you're ranking it by, like, how good the ghost story is or how, like, historically sort of reliable and important the story is. Well, this is the thing. I think it's a great story. I think it's a good... Like, it's a campfire story. It's the sort of story my friends would have told... And then I wouldn't have slept. Absolutely, yeah. So I, for that reason, I think it gets a good score. I don't believe it. No. If... I don't want to say that I don't believe it because I don't want him to come at me. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm giving it a seven out of fear. Okay. So... <laughs> um, fair enough, fair enough. Well, we would love to know what you think as well about, uh, about our ghosts and skeleton stories, of course. Sometimes they are more on the legend sort of uh, silly stories vibe. Sometimes they are much more on the historical importance and sort of interesting myths that, and interesting historical, historically significant yeah. stories. Uh, you can make up your own mind at home which one you think is more important. You can also make up your own mind about how you want to rank these. But either way, let us know what you give it and why. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, it'd be great. I think it is quite hard when some of them are ghostly story like ghost stories and some of them are real because if it was a real tangible story with historical fact like we could back it up mm. i'd give it a higher score absolutely 
But unfortunately, but the, man's, the man's death, I feel, also is grim. And I watched I watched Game of Thrones enough to know that that's that's horrendous. That's way not to go. a good way to go. Yeah. That brings us to the end. That's the only ghosts and skeletons I have for today. What did you think of our whistle-stop tour of the A's and B's of Northumberland castles? I feel a bit dizzy, actually. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of them. Uh, another thing that was really interesting, and Berwick. Berwick is particularly fascinating. I'm sure that will come up in one of our special episodes. There's a lot to unpack there. Absolutely. I think there's several things we've covered here that will need extensive unpacking at a later date. And please do let us know what you would most like to hear about. You know, do you want to hear about a particular Scottish, Anglo-Scottish war? Do you want to hear about a particular invasion, a particular king? We would love to know your thoughts for the theme episodes. As I say, this is selection box layer one of Northumberland. Northumberland's selection box of chocolates is a four-layered one, really. There's going to be... There's going to be plenty, so we will be returning to Northumberland mm-hmm. at a later date. But for now, that is all the castles we're going to look at. Next week, of course, we have our theme episode. Which which of the castles would you most like to visit, Georgia? Well, I, I don't want to visit Belsey, that's nope. for sure. absolutely not. I'd like to go to Berwick. I would like to go to Berwick. I think Berwick is particularly an important castle. It's a shame we couldn't fit it into its own feature, really, because I think there's a lot of history there to unpack. But I think a lot of the history there is so wide that it mm. it deserves a theme episode rather than just its own castle yeah, episode. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not so much the castle that needs needs a, its own episode. It's, it's the history, the history surrounding it. it. I cannot wait yeah. to get into those topics. Yeah, it'll be really good. So I guess that's, I mean, that's the end of episode three, Georgia. And we're almost at the end of Northumberland, part one of many next episode will be our special episode where we dig into a theme that we found from these episodes so we will see you next week if you want to contact us in the meantime you can reach us at podcastles on all social medias or we've got our website podcastles.co.uk or you can email us at podcastlespodcast at gmail.com and i think that's about as contactable as we are isn't it georgia and if you like this episode, it would be great if you could subscribe and give us a, a cheeky little like and maybe leave a review. It really helps us out. But yeah, see you next week, everyone. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye.